Good morning. Before I get into this morning's message, I need to let you know about something important that's going to be happening next Sunday, the 19th. There's a full page insert in your bulletin this morning with the words, did you know at the top? And if you could pull that out, please. Our congregation is in the middle of the process of leaving our current denomination, the Presbyterian Church USA, in order to unite with a new and exciting Presbyterian body called the Covenant Order of Evangelical Presbyterians. It's nicknamed ECO. On the back of the sheet, you'll see a summary of the main reasons why we are seeking dismissal, mainly because we want to protect our unique identity and mission as a congregation as we go into the future. And I'm 100% convinced we need to make this change in order for us to stay the same, to stay who we are. We have to protect what makes this church such a great place to serve Jesus Christ. And by moving into a denomination that will actually support us in our mission, the Covenant Order of Evangelical Presbyterians will do just that. The congregation has to vote on all this, followed by a vote of our presbytery. And as best we know, the date for our congregational vote will be Sunday morning, June 14th. We're planning one large worship celebration for PCNP and for New Community Church, similar to how we celebrated our 275th anniversary, you know, under a big tent in the parking lot so that we can all be together. It's going to be an historic moment in the life of our church, so you really must be there on June 14th. I can't emphasize that too much. So please, mark it on your calendar today. It's only 63 days away. So we need you to be there to vote. College students, high school students, we need you there too. Now as part of the dismissal process, the Elizabeth Presbytery has requested to have access to our congregation to present their side of the story, in a sense to rebut the information that I've shared with the congregation and to encourage you to vote no on leaving. So in a spirit of openness, next Sunday, the stated clerk of our presbytery, the Reverend Paul Rack, will preach at three of our five worship services. I know Paul. I've worked with him for 16 years. He's a good guy. We're miles apart theologically, but he's a person of integrity and a straight shooter. And in fact, when we were having our problems with the presbytery in launching the new community church campus, uh, besides the elders at the Garwood Presbyterian Church, Paul was the only one who spoke up in our favor. And in his position as clerk of the presbytery said that we had followed all the right procedures and were perfectly within our rights to become a multi-campus church. So we need to thank him for that. And so next Sunday, I hope you'll join me in giving him a warm welcome, even though we may disagree with what he has to say. Reverend Rack will preach at the 8.30 a.m. service, the 9.30 traditional service, and the 11 o'clock contemporary service. The 9.30 service in the ministry center and the new community worship services will proceed as usual. I'll prepare my normal video sermon for those two services. And the sermon video, audio podcast, and printed text will be available on thecornernj.com. This way everyone is invited to hear Reverend Rack, but also you have the option of attending a normal worship service if you're so inclined. A question and answer period will follow each of Reverend Rack's presentations in the Wenman Room. And then at noon, we'll have a pizza luncheon uh, in Parish Hall so that everyone who would like to stay and have further discussion with Reverend Rack and other representatives from the Presbytery about the Presbyterian Church at USA and the dismissal process, you'll have that opportunity. All right, let's uh, pray just for a second, and then we'll get into God's Word this morning. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, settle down our hearts and help us to lay aside all worries and concerns that might cloud our minds. Let your word bear fruit in our lives. Send your Holy Spirit to teach us now through the words that you inspired in the Apostle Paul. In your name I pray, amen. We are starting a new message series today called Get Real. And that's going to take us chapter by chapter through the Apostle Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church. You know, I love preaching through a whole book of the Bible because it's just so important for Christians to understand the whole flow and thought and teaching of Scripture rather than just chopping the Bible up into individual verses. It's so much richer when we can see how the whole book works together. This study is going to take us through the summer months, so I hope you'll begin to read 2 Corinthians during the week and come prepared for the Sunday message. Start a small group where you read and discuss 2 Corinthians together. We'll be glad to help you with that. The weekly texts are printed in your bulletin today, so take that home and use it as your reading guide. So let me now read our passage today from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 22. Let's hear God's word. Paul writes, But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, by Silas, by Timothy, was not yes and no. But in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both of us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. I want you to imagine for a moment that you have a superpower, that you can become invisible, and while you're invisible, you can listen in on people without them knowing that you're there. Your family, your co-workers, your friends, other students at school, strangers even, you can eavesdrop and hear everything they say. You know, that might not really be such a good idea. But let's just say you're listening in, and the topic comes up, what does it mean to be a Christian? What is a real Christian like? I mean, just imagine the variety of answers you'd hear. One person might say, Christians are nothing but narrow-minded bigots, hypocrites, and haters. Another person might say, Christians do the best humanitarian work in the world, do more to help the poor and the hungry than any other group. And if you jump from group to group listening in on how people respond to that question, I mean, the answers would be all over the place. So many opinions. People are kind of confused about what does it really mean to be a Christian, a Christ follower. And it's not enough anymore for a person to say that they're a Christian because that word itself triggers an emotional response and, and means such different things to different people. It could be a positive response or it could be a very negative response. It's emotional. And so you never really know ahead of time and maybe that's one reason Christians are a little reluctant to talk about their faith. You don't know if you're about to you know, stir up a hornet's nest. The challenge we face today as Christians is that it's not simply enough to say what we are. People have to see it. People have to see in demonstrable ways who we are as followers of Jesus, the way we act, the things we do, the way we live. Somehow, our faith in Jesus has to get visible, tangible, real. People have to see it in ways that make sense to them. We live in such a disillusioned age, and people are just 
tired of the hype, tired of fakes, tired of false promises. But I think people are ready to respond to what's real. The watching world is looking for authenticity, for substance, looking for something that's worth their time and energy. So is your faith in Christ real? Is it authentic? Does your faith have substance? Todd Wilson writes in his book, Real Christian, that there is a visible difference, something you can see, and unless Christians get some clarity for ourselves about what it means to be real in our faith, we can't any, expect anybody else to take us seriously. Being real means more than just accepting Christ as Savior. Being real as a Christian means something more than just going to church like you're a spectator at a concert. Being real as a Christian means something more than even attending a Bible study. Remember, it was Jesus who said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's Matthew 7, 21. In that same chapter, verse 15, Jesus said, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Jesus saw the same problem we have today. There are a lot of people who are faking it, pretending, missing the real. Some folks are just oblivious, and some are operating out of devious or destructive motives. And Jesus kind of calls that out, and maybe that's the same challenge we need today. I guess what I'm trying to say is that being real for Christ is not just having your mind informed by biblical truth. It's not just making sure your behavior conforms to certain moral standards. It's much deeper than that. Being real for Christ is about seeing your whole life transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, don't get me wrong. Believing right is very important. I'm very strong on having sound biblical doctrine. And living right is very important too. Your lifestyle and moral choices are very important to the Lord. But both of those things taken together still don't get at the essence of being a real Christian. Because you can have all the right doctrine and still be a mean manipulator or a nasty gossip. And that gives the black eye to the name of Christ. Or you can be the nicest, sweetest, most caring person in the whole world and still be far from Christ. I mean, there are lots of very nice atheists out there Nicer than a lot of Christians I know. Being nice is not the litmus test for salvation. There has to be something else at work that binds your doctrine, what you believe, and your behavior, how you live, it binds them together. Something that binds them and gives them life and vitality and authenticity. Something that makes faith real. And we're going to discover that in 2 Corinthians. Is that that something is the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God the Father and God the Son implanted in the human soul uh, that turns to Christ for salvation. Throughout this letter, the Apostle Paul is going to describe the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And we'll see how activating the Holy Spirit in the believer's life is just as necessary and needed today as it was when Paul wrote these words almost 2,000 years ago. Now, whenever you read one of the letters of the New Testament, it's important to remember that it's like listening in on one end of a telephone conversation or, or reading one person's text messages without knowing what the other person had said. Paul's letters in the New Testament were part of an ongoing conversation between Paul and the various churches. So it's really important to have some idea of the background of what's going on in that conversation so that you can then properly understand what he's saying and then apply the truth to our lives today. So let's go back a bit. Corinth was one of the great cities of the Roman Empire. It was a large city by ancient standards, about 700,000 people. It was just in a strategic location in Greece, connecting two gulfs 
that allowed merchant ships to transfer their goods without having to sail all the way around the bottom of Greece and risk the dangerous waters there. It had lain in ruins for about 100 years before it was rebuilt by Julius Caesar in 44 B.C. And it quickly became the third most important city in the Roman Empire behind Rome and Alexandria. It experienced spectacular growth for one reason, money. The prospect of wealth, I mean, it draws people like fresh meat draws flies. It was filled with people from all over the ancient world. Every religion, every nationality walked its streets. It was the most cosmopolitan city of the ancient world. Merchants and sailors and artists and philosophers, Romans, Greeks, Arabs, Asians, Baltic peoples, slaves, slave owners, walking its streets. You'd sense this international flavor, the tremendous diversity, hundreds of different religions with practically a temple to a different God on every corner. Along with that, there was a sense of total corruption. Morally and ethically, Corinth was on the bottom of the heap. In fact, there was an ancient Greek expression to say to act like a Corinthian was one of the worst possible insights, insults. Drunkenness of drugs was everywhere. It was known as the number one spot in the Roman Empire for the sex trade. The temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, you know, in quotes, dominated the city. And a thousand prostitutes a day worked there in that one temple, male and female and everything in between. And hundreds of other, you know, temples slash brothels did the same thing. In fact, archaeologists have determined that during the time of Paul, when he was writing his letters to Corinth, uh, it was experiencing a tremendous uh, epidemic of venereal disease. It was a sex-saturated society. So don't make the mistake of thinking that people back then were naive or didn't understand the kinds of problems or issues we face today. They had it by the truckloads. Human nature has not changed. The push towards an anything-goes attitude towards sexuality, the push towards religious diversity with no one religion having a claim to truth, none of that is new, friends. History is just repeating itself today. And yet it was in Corinth that Christianity took root in Europe. Paul first visited Corinth in about 50 A.D., and he stayed with a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. You can read that in Acts 18. And together they got this small little church started, and the church reflected all the best and worst that Corinth had to offer. This amazing mix of cultures and moralities and truths, and to that Paul brought only one thing, and that was the essential reality of Jesus Christ, God's one and only Son. This little church, this little group of people, just enough to fill someone's living room, they had such a passion for Jesus Christ that the church began to grow. More and more people encountered real life through Jesus, real life through the witness of these ordinary folks who themselves had been transformed by Christ. And so thieving merchant, merchants and prostitutes and slave and slave owners, all kinds of people brought all kinds of baggage when they came to faith in Christ. And so Paul stayed there for two years to get the church started. And from there he went on to Ephesus, which is in modern day Turkey, and he planted a church there on the Asian continent. And it was from Ephesus that he began to write back letters to Corinth because he'd heard they were having a lot of problems. Divisions were splitting the church. False teachers were stealing away the flock. Egos were getting bruised. People brought their sexual issues into the church, and they had to relearn what godly sexuality was all about, and that wasn't easy. And Paul had to call them back to the basics, and so he wrote a letter, and then he made a second visit to Corinth to deal with the leaders who were opposed to him and people who were trying to sabotage his reputation. He then went back to Ephesus, wrote a couple of other very sharply worded letters that, uh, to the Corinth leaders that, that have been lost historically to us. 
But then this letter, God, this letter was hand-delivered uh, to the Corinthian church by Paul's trusted aide, Titus. And Paul is on pins and needles to hear about how things are going since his last kind of harsh letter. He's worried about them, but he's also had his own problems to deal with in Ephesus, beatings, persecutions. And so there's a mixture of emotions in this letter. Paul's affection for the people of Corinth and his anxiety over their failure to obey the word of Lord, but that's compounded by his own sufferings. And so he starts with that right away in chapter 1. Verse 3 through 11, he describes all the trouble and heartache that he's experiencing in Ephesus and how Christ is still the one who gives him the strength and the comfort that he needs to carry on in what were very difficult circumstances. And then he responds to his critics who are slandering him because he hasn't been able to visit them again like he wished he could. His critics had been saying Paul didn't really care about Corinth, that he was a phony, that he was a fraud, not a real apostle not a real Christian, that he said yes out of one side of his mouth and then said no out of the other side. And Paul kind of takes the gloves off in verses 12 through 17, not because he's thin-skinned or he got his ego bruised. He, he has to defend his integrity. He defends his apostleship because he doesn't want the church to go off the rails with false teaching or false behavior. If he gives up or gives in, the false teachers are just going to swoop in and fill the void. And that's always the truth in the church. If leaders don't stand for the truth of the gospel as delivered by the apostles, then false teachings just swoops in, spreads over the church like an oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. And so he has to call them back to Jesus. Paul's kind of an excellent debater. He takes the very words his critics had been using against him, that he was saying both yes and no at the same time. And he flips that around. He says in verse 18, But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. People may be phony. People may talk out of both sides of of their mouths, but not God. And he's saying there's one indisputable truth that underlies everything about the Christian faith, When God says yes, that's an eternal yes, and he never takes it back. God's promises are always true, and God's promises always come through Jesus. That's the foundation of our faith. If God was yes one day and no the next day, we'd all be miserable trying to figure out, you know, does God love me or not? Are my sins forgiven or not? Do I belong to Jesus or not? Am I going to heaven or not? If God was yes one day and then no the next day, we'd live with this total uncertainty. You might as well not have any faith at all if everything is just going to change from one day to the next. That's why these promises are so important. That's why the promise of Hebrews 13.8 is so important. Remember that verse? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. An authentic Christian begins with an authentic Christ. To be real as a Christian begins with the real Christ because all of God's promises are yours in Jesus. Hundreds of promises, all of them yours in Christ. Every promise in the Bible is secured for you by Jesus Christ. And that's what gets the big amen because everything God says is true. Every promise is true and they're all based on Jesus. So whenever you see a promise in God's word, you can say, that's for me. Jesus did that for me. It's when we can embrace God's great yes over our lives. That's when we can begin to be real as Christians. Because it means we find a basic 
sense of security in our relationship with Christ, you feel safe. Knowing God's provision of protection and, and, and his promises are yours in Jesus, when you really feel God's yes over your life, you can operate out of that sense of safety. You don't have to try and control other people or control the events because you're safe in Christ. You don't have to try and manipulate people or put other people down to prop yourself up. You're already secure in Christ. You don't have to operate out of fear. You don't have to be filled with anger or resentment or gossip because your identity is already secure in Christ. You can be generous. You can be caring. You can be patient because you live with this inner sense of Christ's love. And God gave you the Holy Spirit as the down payment on all his promises for you. As you meditate on the promises of God, the Spirit of God is given to you to teach you what that promise means and then how to apply it to your life. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit brings God's promises home to our hearts and makes us alive as believers and offers us the power to live it. God's great promise over you is one of affirmation and forgiveness and the power to live for him. You are not alone. If you have given your life to Christ, then the Holy Spirit is in you. And it's his job to help you get real as a Christian. That's what we're going to be exploring in the coming weeks, to see how that Holy Spirit begins to make all of God's promises true for you. Let him begin to do that this week. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit and how exciting it is to explore your promises, your assurances, your great yes over our lives, guaranteed for us now by the indwelling Spirit. Open our hearts, Lord. Help us to be open to the work of your Spirit in our lives. Help us to see your promises in your word this week and make those promises real for each one of us. Thank you for your gift of love. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.